Hello, 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 and welcome to Finding Matt Damon. Um, on this podcast, we interview arts and entertainment industry professionals about their lives, careers, successes, and failures, creating a beautiful archive of stories, all leading to meeting the one and only Matt Damon. On today's episode, we had the opportunity to interview John Judd, who's a fantastic Chicago-based actor. He was so wonderful, such a great storyteller, and truly just an amazing human whose journey into acting is fascinating. Uh, So please enjoy this wonderful episode with John Judd. Thanks for listening. Could you tell me who Matt Damon is and what does he mean to you? And while you're at it, could you tell me who is your Ben Affleck too? Matt Damon is maybe just the friend you meet along the way. So let's all talk about Matt Damon and have a great day. Hello! Hi! Thanks so much for joining us today. We're so excited to meet you electronically. My pleasure. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Are either of you guys actors? Yes. You both yes. are? Mm-hmm. You are? We actually met in improv class in New York City. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Where were you studying improv? At the Upright Citizens Brigade. Yeah, I know a lot of people over there. Or I yeah. knew a lot of people over there. I, I probably don't anymore. Uh, I, I started out doing improv. My, I wouldn't be talking to you now if, it hadn't, if I'd been anywhere but Chicago, I wouldn't be an actor. I sort of sneaked in the back door. Didn't you start out as a painter? That's what David told us. Well, yeah, I mean, one of my, that was kind of like my native talent, you know, I could always draw and paint. And um, I was a teenager living uh, briefly in Dallas, Texas, where my father had been transferred. And I was painting cartoons in in an animation studio there, uh, sort of living by my talent, you know, and I was making pretty good dough, or I thought so at the time. Expenses were low. And my dad talked me into going to college because he didn't get to go. And he said, you should go. And I said, hey, you know, um, I was, I think, making $7.50 an hour painting cartoons. And that seemed like a pretty good gig to me. All my friends were like mowing lawns or bus boys or whatever. Uh, but my dad, <laughs> my dad said, look at the guys you work, take a good look at the guys you work with. And they were all kind of like, in their 40s. They were all divorced. They were all drunks. They were miserable. And for me, it was a good job. But for them, it was kind of like a dead end. So I said, yeah, you're right. And so he talked me into going to college and I got sidetracked from, I kind of lost my sense of humor for a few years and became very serious uh, artist, you know, uh, because I couldn't do, I wanted to go to film school uh, to do animation, but I didn't have the grades to get in and either NYU or UCLA, which were the two places I uh, had applied to, but I didn't have very good grades. So I went to the University of Texas at Austin because back then, not now, but back then, if you lived in the state and had 500 bucks, you could pretty much go. And so I did, and it was a great, it was great. It was a wonderful art faculty at the time. A bunch of young people like right out of graduate school from all over the country. world-class art history faculty at the time that I was there. I, it was great. Uh, but I, you know, I ended up sort of like turning up my nose at the idea of making money from art. So <laughs> I used to tell my dad, you made me go to college and I never made a dime since. So, so then I came to Chicago to go to graduate school. 
at the uh, Art Institute. And um, while I was here, my paintings sort of got more and more like they wanted to be stories. And uh, I, it was a two year program. And I thought, well, nobody really cares if I paint or not, you know, maybe I should be writing stories. So that's, I abandoned my friend painting and uh, I tried to write fiction for a few years. And that was sort of, uh, didn't go anywhere really. I, I, you know, I wasn't educated in, in, as a writer and I wasn't particularly well read, although I read a lot, but I didn't have my own voice. Everything I wrote was sort of derivative of things I like to read. And so, uh, but along the way, I used to improvise dialogue into a little cassette tape recorder. I would just sit, we lived in a, we rented the top floor of a house that had a little room in the attic and they let me, they let us use it. And I used to write up there. And so I would just sit up there and uh, kind of like make up these characters and talk into this tape recorder. And something, then, you know, I would transcribe it if something happened, things happened faster that way. And it was kind of, and so I did this for a few years and I had a straight job and I, I just uh, was pretty miserable artistically. I felt like a failure. And one night I was just up there listening. I just decided to listen to some of these I had a shoebox full of these cassette tapes. And I started listening to that. And I thought, what if I did that? What if I was the delivery system? And it was the scariest thing I could think of to do. So as you, as any artist would, I thought, well, that, that means that I have to do that. And so one of my oldest friends who used to be an actor had given it up, was living in Chicago and he had gotten a journalism degree. He was writing for Stageville. He was writing features for Stageville. But he, he was in that world. He sort of knew about things that I didn't know about. And I called him and I said, I think I want to take an acting class. Uh, who would you recommend? Do you recommend anybody? And he, I was 30 years old at this time. So it was kind of a late launch for me. Uh, he said he had just done an interview with Dell Close and Sharna, uh, who had just kind of partnered up and were teaching workshops above this cabaret over on the north side of Chicago. And my friend said, you should go talk to these guys because you don't have to know anything. You just walk in. And I went and saw one of their shows and I signed up for the workshops. And the, uh, Sharna told me years ago, last time I spoke to her, it's been a while. Uh, and I don't remember this, but she said, uh, I watched the show and she said, so do you want to take the workshops? And I said, let me walk around the block and think about it because if I do this, it's going to change my life. I don't remember saying that, but she claims I did. And it sounds like something I might've said. So I did, and I did. And within a week I was, you know, on stage with a group that they kind of slapped together. And uh, it, it literally changed my life in a day, you know, I mean, in one night, in an hour, the idea of it. And it was, uh, it was terrifying. It still is. I mean, I have friends, uh, Dave Pasquese is an old pal of mine and, he and TJ and Dave, you guys are probably familiar with the best in the business, in my opinion. And occasionally when they were doing their gig in Chicago, one of them would be away or they wouldn't, you know, they like to invite like any old married couples, they sometimes invite in a third and uh, I would go up with them and I was a good improviser, but I was very young and I wasn't sober yet. And now I, I find it, I find I'm no good at it anymore because I'm spoiled by rehearsal 
and direction and a text. And I feel like I have an expectation of success. I want it to be good. And that's sort of death, as you know, to good improv. But it was great. I learned, I mean, I, I, I did not study really other than uh, taking workshops with Dell. And Dell, uh, together, we sort of invented the long form that he called Harold that everybody does now. Back in about 1985 is when I got, and there were, uh, it was a heady time. It was, it was a lot going on. We were figuring this stuff out and it was, it was wonderful. I got with a group, you know, we, we worked together all the time. We did like two shows a week at this place called Cross Currents, which was, uh, there was a stand-up that opened there one night and said, this looks like somebody built it in shop class. It was just this weird sort of like, black plywood cabaret with a bar out front. But we, you know, we, we became the house team and uh, we were quite popular and, and we just we got to where, you know, things that I wouldn't have believed are possible, this kind of group thinking, human potential thing that improv can do that Dell talked about. And Dell was a, you know, Dell was a witch and a very spiritual individual. He was, a, he was the most unique person I've ever met in my life probably a very unusual guy and fascinating, but really generous in a way, you know, the, the breadth of his knowledge was, he was very, he was very generous with what he knew. And he was sort of had a very young mind about uh, trying to see what was possible. You know, it was a tough laugh. If you ever made Dell laugh, which I did, I think twice, he fell 10 feet tall. He was kind of a father figure, you know, he was, I was definitely the oldest guy in our group. And at the time, uh, as far as a lot of like Dave uh, Pasquese and a lot of my friends, uh, Tim Meadows and people whose names you would know, you know, moved on to Second City. But I was 30. And at the time, that was the cutoff point for uh, the Players Workshop at Second City. You couldn't be that old and they wouldn't, they wouldn't let me in. I'm sure they would take my money now if, you know, if they were still in business. But uh, back then it was like it was a young man's game. And I believe that's true, actually, since uh, I, I found it to be nearly impossible to do. It makes me very uncomfortable now. But back then, I didn't know any better. I didn't know any different, not necessarily better. But uh, I learned innumerable things, you know, basically just got used to being on stage, got used to listening to my partner, made me a better actor. And nearly everybody I think who starts out that way uh, feels that way. It, you, you just learn a sort of ease of a, a kind of presence. You know, Dell was famous for the idea of truth in comedy. He didn't really like gags. He didn't like going for laughs. The best comedy came out of genuine human experience. So that's what we, we sort of made little plays. They were funny as hell and they were kind of crazy and kind of trippy, you know? They, you know, if you've done that, if you've done Harold, it's like, uh, you know, you, you hop on a moving thing, sort of, and then you try to figure out where to get off. It's, it was really magical, wonderful. When the Seinfeld show started, uh, I, I basically had already, stopped doing improv by then, but I don't know when that was, 1990 or something. All those scripts are heralds. 
you know, they have like an A story and a B story. They'll posit something and it comes back at the end and that's the button on the show. It's they're all heralds. Watch it. Watch a Seinfeld episode. You'll see. They're all they're all that structure. I am going to have to realize that. That's wild. Yeah, they are. (laughs) And, you know, uh, anyway, so, yeah, I kind of had to get out of there. Uh, We scripted a show with Dell. We did a we did a musical review uh, with an actual script. <laughs> no, these writing sessions were pretty wild. Uh, and Dell was, uh, uh, one of two people that I have met in my life who have a sort of surgical knowledge of where the laugh is. If they tell you this is where the laugh is, don't go anywhere else. Cause he knows the other guy is Nathan Lane. Those two guys, they say, this is the laugh. Just go there. Don't think about it. And they're always right. And Dell was never wrong. And Nathan's never been wrong that I know of. I got to work with Nathan here in uh, The Iceman Cometh. We started in Chicago and we took it to BAM a few years ago. And uh, we didn't go to Broadway, uh, uh, which disappointed a lot of people. But um, I think BAM was sort of the place for that show because it's kind of like we didn't cut it. So it was five hours long. And it was like kind of like an old Rolls Royce that you drive in a parade and people go, wow, look at that thing still runs. You know, it was kind of in, <laughs> in the Harvey, that crazy ruin of a, that beautiful space and the bam, you know, that seemed to be the right place for it to me. And people came and watched the whole thing. And on Broadway, they wouldn't have done that. You know, four acts, five hours, come on. But we did it. And uh, I got to meet Nathan. He's a lovely guy and was very generous and kind to me he took a liking to me so he's uh one of the famous people that i met and got to work with in this crazy thing that started out really for me as a kind of experiment and then i just i'm really the luckiest guy you'll ever meet because uh nobody said hey you're crazy what are you doing my parents were still alive they said yeah go for that my wife i've been married a long time and my wife said yes you know try that out my wife and I both were art students. And so we kind of like wore a lot of hats and traded off throughout the years. And certainly in the early years, we'd, you know, do one thing and the other one would pay the rent. And so I didn't pay any rent for a while. <laughs> I didn't pay any rent make doing improv, but I, you know, uh, I, I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't be talking to you right now if it weren't for that. And then so... Dell didn't have, Dell never drove, uh, which is probably a good thing. And I was giving him a ride home one night from one of our, I don't know, we, we, I think we had already launched our little show that we wrote together. Anyway, I was giving him a ride home. He used to do monologues to open our Saturday night shows. And uh, he said, you know, you're pretty good at this, but if you want to be an actor, you must stop doing it. And I was shocked really, because uh, he was the champion of improv as its own, you know, entity as an art form in its own right, as opposed to Bernie Solins, uh, his old, his old partner at Second City, which they used it more as a writing tool and as a developing, you know, to develop sketch comedy that they would script and then, you know, they had these, these properties that they developed through improv. Uh, it, it it sounds more disparate than it really is to what we did, but anyway, Dell said that to me. And when Dell said something to you or to me at that period of my life, I, uh, you know, I listened. 
So that was there in the back of my head. And I thought, well, Castell was at the Goodman in uh, famously playing Polonius in a production of Hamlet that he got an award for. And Del was doing legitimate stuff as well as being comedian and being Del Close, which, you know, was his own full-time job. But then, uh, so I thought that world seems so remote to me, the idea that I could do that. Uh, but then uh, within a few months, I sort of had to leave the place just for personal reasons anyway. I, I kind of felt like it was time to move out of there and to see what was next. I took an act, I signed up for an acting class with a, a director you may know, Kyle Donnelly uh, was in Chicago at that time and she started this class and then she got a job directing somewhere and left. And her partner took over the class and I didn't like her partner and I didn't like the class. Uh, I, I wasn't ready for it. So I, I dropped out. And then uh, I don't know how she found out about me, but there was a woman running a little theater here. And this was 1988, maybe, uh, who had an, a visual art background as well. She'd gone to the Art Institute as an undergraduate, I think. Somebody told her about me. And she did these sort of wacky plays and uh, she was doing a, and her, she had a sister who was an actor and her husband was uh, made money somehow and they they lived above this little theater they owned this building anyway she called me in for an audition i never auditioned for anything i had no i didn't know upstage from down i didn't know nothing oh wow so i went in there and did i did you know i i went in there and auditions uh auditioned when i i mean i'm thank god there's no like record of this thing anyway i i had I thought to make it more interesting, I had invented some bit of business, like I was sewing a button on my jacket and I was actually doing this during the audition. Like it had nothing to do with anything. It was just, anyway, uh, in spite of the audition, she hired me to be in this show that she had written and her sister was acting in. And so this place is called Live Bait Theater. And I, so then there I was and I was doing a play. And it was, you know, so then that was the beginning of this other chapter of me. And all of this was sort of like, I'll do this until somebody makes me stop or, you know, I, you know, or nobody wants me to keep doing it or whatever, which there have been plenty of times when nobody wanted me to keep doing it, it seems later. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I just, I, you know, I just got kind of encouraged along. So I just kept going. And really, that's a very Chicago thing. There was a lot of at the time, it's a little less so now, but as opposed to New York and a lot of other places, Chicago had a really strong non-equity theater scene. So you didn't have to be a professional actor. And some of the best actors I know are still don't have an equity card. You know, they have, they have straight jobs and they, yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've worked with some fine actors but uh, I got to this, I got to the point that I wanted to get paid for it, and I you know you know I was kind of I'm all still just kind of a lone well you know a gun for hire whatever, so I uh, I just kind of had to go from place to place. But there are a few people on whose shoulders I stand, and Cromer is probably I mean it, it, if he had not recommended me to talk to you, I would be recommending him to you because he's. <laughs> 
<laughs> we, we joke that we taught each other everything we know, and it's it's honestly not a joke. I love David, and uh, I miss him. But you know, we uh, it's great because we uh, I meet people that have worked with him, and they say he talks about you all the time. He quotes you all the time, and I quote him all the time. And uh, so I think we misquote each other a lot. Probably. He says. <laughs> He said that I say, do it like a person. And I think that was a note from him to me. Do it like a person would do it. But he, I think he attributes that to me. At any rate, it's a good note. Do it like a person would do it. It's one of my best notes from David. I'll tell you some great notes uh, from different directors. Notes that have stuck with me all my life. One of them is from David. We were doing, so David before uh, the world recognized how brilliant he is, you know, was kind of like still in Chicago and doing whatever. And uh, you guys talked to Austin just before me, right? Well, mm -hmm. Austin had written Horse and Shadow and David, and you heard the saga of how David had been selected or proffered by Steppenwolf to direct it. And, and they met, and then of course the deal was done. And... <laughs> I, I went and I got the part. <laughs> and so here's the note was, uh, so we're doing, uh, we're working on, we're rehearsing the thing. And I was like, that was really the first high status character I'd ever played. You know, I was like a character actor, sort of a grubby guy. You know, I was always the, I was somebody else. I was a lower status person generally speaking <laughs> in in my drama life and uh so you know i'm learning how to be Laurence olivier or just to be somebody that famous and the and the beauty of orson's play uh, austin's play at, at least to us was that these people are world famous but we're peeking through a keyhole at them and they behave very badly and they behave very nakedly and so we get to watch that and it's kind of wonderful in that respect so anyway uh we started the my uh, larry's first scene is, uh he's he's kind of playing cat and mouse with ken tynan who austin gave a a horrible stammer uh and austin uh was kind of like you know uh exorcising one of his own demons so ken comes in and and larry is kind of just like really cat and mousing him and uh we started doing it and David said, you got to slow down. And we were at Steppenwolf and, and they were having, I don't know what, for some reason, Malkovich was over in the, in the main building and David had gone over there on a break and was down in that big green room down in the basement and Malkovich was down there. And so David was in the room with Malkovich for a while. And he said, I was just in the green room with Malkovich. And he said, he knows you'll wait to hear what he has to say. He's in no hurry. And that was like the greatest note. That was like permission to be that guy. Mm. And it made perfect sense to me. I mean, just, you know, yes, of course. And that's true. You, you, you know, you're sitting in a room with John Malkovich. You're going to wait to see what he says. So, you know, uh, so that was like one of those great notes. It just like distilled something that said, oh, yes, I have permission now to do this. And Austin also has given me fantastic notes, although he's never directed me in anything. Uh, he's been a, a mentor in a lot of ways and he'll give notes 
you know, by way, well, Uta Hagen would say, you know, by way of some, yeah. But, you know, he, uh, in his play, there's a, this phone call where, and every actor sort of dreads, or I do, I don't know about every actor, dreads seeing on the page, he breaks down, you know, mm-hmm. so it's, oh, I have to cry here, you know, so you figure out some way, uh, you know, and so we had been doing the play. We were at Williamstown, uh, we were touring it the summer after we did a set. We're at Williamstown. Everybody loved us. We were killing it. And I was, you know, I could squirt in this place every night. I was like, I was, I, I got the emotional place just from the text, just from the circumstances of the phone call. And it's weird because it's a one-sided, I mean, the other actor, she's upstage on a, you know, it's a theater phone call. So you'd see us both, but, and we moved down to Westport Country Playhouse uh where everybody hated us it was like a 75 year tradition of light fare done by people from broadway and television and then here we were nobody had ever heard of any of us the word cunt is uttered within the first like minute and a half of the play it's lit by a ghost light and they just hated it they, they had to hire I, I should you know they had to hire police to direct traffic at our intermission because the number of people leaving the theater was interrupting the flow of the town. Wow. <laughs> the longest oh three weeks of my life. They hated us. But when I got there and it dried up, this, I couldn't get the thing, the, 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 I couldn't get the cry at the end of the phone call in Westport. And not just because the audience hated it. We, we had gone from a, we went to a, a proscenium stage. There were a lot of things different. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You know, it was different. And I couldn't get it. I had it and it was gone. So I, I was talking to Austin. I said, well, well I, I can't, can't do this thing anymore. And he said, well, Uta Hagen would tell you that if you're chasing an effect, it will always elude you. But here, here's the note. And this is a great note. I've used it a hundred times since. If the actor is having a problem, make the actor's problem the character's problem. So in other words, why don't I feel more in this phone call with my wife whom I'm breaking up with? You know, why, why am I all of a sudden not emotional? And when I made that my, when I made that Larry's problem, even though Larry is a lot less circumspect about why his emotions would be what they are than I was, I think, but it, it worked. I mean, it's a great note. It's, it's, it's a very useful tool. Things like that stick with me. I'm lucky to have known these guys, you know, who just kind of like the other one, I'll give you a third note. This is just, this is from Amy Morton. We, I did a production of um, Clyborne Park here playing Russ at Steppenwolf. I didn't get to do it in New York. It's a great play. I know Bruce and Amy cast me and there was a point and Amy's a great actor. And I really admire her acting. So she won't let you get away with any shit. You know, she just won't let you, she keeps you honest. Is it, is a sort of nicer way to say it. And uh, there's this big showdown scene between Russ and his wife. And he's, uh, he walks on eggshells all the time because uh, she's sort of mentally unstable and he's afraid of setting her off. And finally he just gets, he's just snapped and like screams at her. And so I'm doing the scream, you know, I'm like acting my ass off in rehearsal one day and Amy said, if you have to take a breath in the middle of that rant, I ain't buying it. 
And it was so true. It was like, and I hate that when I see actors do, you know what I mean? It's like this. And further, you know, I mean, it's just, it's not, if it's coming out of you and you can modulate it, it's not the thing you're after. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think uh, it's something we here in Chicago pride ourselves on. And I, you know, I mean, people damage their voices and, but it, we, we sort of do it sweatier than, you know, a lot of, I, I, I always, I always hate it when I can tell an actor is modulating a moment for eight shows. You know, I got to do this eight times a week. Mm. I can't go any farther than this without hurting myself. I, when I'm aware of that, and I quite often am, when I see uh, sort of so, uh, otherwise fine actors and people with uh, maybe uh, more interesting pedigrees than my own. But uh, if I see that, I, I check out. It's like, oh, you're saving yourself. And that, that pisses me off. So uh, in Chicago, uh, well, as my friend Tracy Letts said uh, when he was picking up a Tony one year, he said, uh, of, of, of stage actors, and I think in general, uh, in more specific, uh, in Chicago stage actors, he said, we're the ones who say it to their faces. And, you know, as opposed to film actors. But I mean, I, I think in Chicago, we kind of pride ourselves on being ensemble players and, and kind of like breaking a sweat, you know, uh, it's a little bit, it's a little bit more, it's a little bit scarier. I think the way we do it when it's good, the, the thing is, uh, you know, go away and make good and tell them where you came from. That's, that's success in Chicago showbiz. You know, it's like, they want you to go out, into the real world and do well and then say, Hey, I'm from Chicago. And now, you know, I, if I want to work all season, I, I kind of have to go on the road. I have to do other regionals and uh, that's fine. I, I enjoy that too. Uh, although it's, it's never quite as good as here to me. Uh, I love working in New York, although I've never, I've never competed for work in New York. I've only been there with imported things that got to go to New York. And I don't know that I could hack it, quite honestly. Uh, same with LA. I have friends out there. They're miserable. They're chasing after work that they don't respect. A lot of them, not all of them. Some of them are, you know, stars. But I mean, some of them, I think people that are the, maybe the, I don't know, LA is just so hard. Hmm. There's no middle class. You're a star, or you're a wannabe star, or you're a loser. Yeah. And in Chicago, it's kind of all middle class in a way, you know, and uh, like I t- uh, like I said, I, I, I consider myself to be one of the luckiest people I know just because I've been able to, you know, work just I've worked pretty much everywhere that doesn't ask you to sing. I, I don't sing. so. And I didn't know that I I don't know that I have this thing, but I don't know how to do anything else now. So I've been at it what, 35 years. And, uh, you know, I never thought I would make a living at it. I, I really just thought it was an experiment that was, it kind of just took over my life and I've been lucky enough to, to, it's a great life if you can get away with it, I think, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's lovely. So many people hate what they do and they, they're miserable, uh, you know, in order to make money. And uh, I'm very lucky. I'm part of a, I'm married, so I'm, uh, you know, I'm not alone in the world. So we share the burdens of paying our bills. Uh, we both have uh, different talents. 
and some of them are the same. My wife is a fine artist. She, she teaches now, but she, did, she didn't teach art, but she still makes art. But she uh, teaches uh, young children at a private school here. And she, you know, she took some time off um, a few years back to design apps for kids, uh, learned a lot. And so then I kind of had, she wasn't making any money during that period. It was kind of experimental for her. And so I had to like start doing regional, you know, I started, had to like mm. carry the, the, the ball, which was kind of fun in a way. And we don't have any kids. So we never had like real adult responsibility for another person. You know what I mean? We just yeah. kind of live like teenage. We got married when we were teenagers and we kind of live that way still even as old as we are, we don't really do the things that you're supposed to do. We just do what we do, what we want to do kind of. And uh, so, yeah, we, uh, that was uh, an interesting time because I realized I, I actually could do it. And I, you know, things are, this has been a hard year. I know it, I'm sure it has been for you. It's been uh, kind of scary. Uh, things are looking up right now. I got some TV work and I've been doing some voiceover and things that I can do to, make a buck here and there but um the theater is kind of the the thing that makes you shannon cochran i did a play with shannon cochran a fine actor uh a few years back and she said i think you're <laughs> she said i think you're clinically depressed and that you're the drug that soothes your ailment is the theater and i said I, you know you might be right i mean i don't know if i'm clinically depressed or not but i when I'm not working, I don't really know what to do. Mm. I don't have hobbies. I'm not, you know what I mean? I'm like, so this has been a challenging year of uh, trying to figure out how to, you know, who is this? Who am I? Another big factor in my life is that I got sober, clean and sober when I was 35, 1991. And uh, I, I immediately got better at my work. I mean, it took a while to uh, find my way uh, I did everything I could think of and everything I wanted to do for about 20 years. And then I sort of got to a point where I, I needed to stop. That. And, uh, so that was a, that was a big help. Yeah. Uh, it got more honest. It got more real. It got more, uh, for a while I was afraid that it, the highs and lows were not as great, you know, without the chemical, uh, adventures. But the, I, I found that, um, uh, it's it's just more honest. It's easier to uh, lie if you're not sober, and it's harder to lie it, well, for me anyway. It's harder to lie if I am sober, uh, and so that's that's a good thing. I think. Uh, I mean, it's certainly a good thing in my life. I think it's a good thing for my work too. You know, yeah. and lo and behold, one of the beauties of working in the theater is that, uh, especially now, I'm usually the oldest guy or you know there's a lot of young people and i'm a positive role model in mm. people's lives you know which uh, i never really uh had a ch chance of being uh you know 30 years ago it's almost 30 years so i'm actually i'm sober longer than i was not so now Congratulations. Wow. That's awesome. yeah congrats Thanks. yeah it was a good you know a good thing for me uh and i uh it's, uh, yeah, it, uh, there, I don't know what else to say about it, but I, I, I do mention it just because I, I do think it's part of, if, if I have enjoyed success, I think that's part of it. 
and I think it, it's helped me be reliable. I mean, I think that uh, I hope, you know, my, uh, my greatest fear, I think, as, a, as an artist is that I'm irrelevant and nobody has the heart to tell me. It's like, oh, here comes that old guy again. You know what I mean? That, that to me is like the nightmare of nightmares is that I, I don't matter and nobody even wants to just let me off the hook and tell me to go away. <laughs> uh, so I think that, uh, you know, among my peers in, in my small community here uh, and, and elsewhere, uh, when I've been lucky enough to get out of here and work other places, you know, that I, I make a good, I think I, I, I think I, I don't, I don't think I have to apologize for anything anymore. Like I used to, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I'm getting to the age now that I'm actually able to say what I need mm. to make demands. Mm. I never felt entitled to do, you know, in most of my life. <laughs> it's a weird you, you know, you're very dependent on somebody giving you permission to do your work. So you don't want to, totally. you, know, you don't want to make waves, mm. but then I, I know people that just, you know, from the get justified or not, this is what I want. Give me what I want. Mm. And it tolerates that too. So it's a good thing. I mean, the beauty of this is to me, we're all different. We all come from different places, but when we get in a room together to, to collaborate and make a thing, it generally happens. I've never been on one that actually like, you know, went off the rails. You know how you get into like tech rehearsal and you think this is not, this is, this is a disaster. <laughs> yeah. It's not going to work. They always work. They, I've never been in one that really like went down in flames. And I'm lucky, I think, in that respect. But I, I think in general that, you know, they, they, they always, and the people out there don't know. You know, they don't know. So, I mean, they don't know all our troubles the, the idea that they're, you know, for real people, the idea that these are deep and troubling things to worry about seems kind of ridiculous. It seems a little bit, you know, it's not life and death. It's the safest place on earth stage. You know, the bullets aren't real. You can do, you can do any, you can behave any way and there's really no consequence to it. I mean, outside of the fictional consequences. So it's like, to me, it's the safest and most wonderful place to be because you can do anything. Um, and, you know, th that's kind of like the, I, it's, that's the drug. That's what keeps you coming back. Can't, it's really hard to do without. Yeah, that's so <laughs> you know, true. It's just, it, it, uh, my friend Tracy Letts was quoted and people have been sending me this article. I guess he, there was something in the New York Times. Yep, there is. Did I was going to ask you about it. <laughs> yeah, well, I think uh, I, there's no way I can uh, top what he said. And I think he said it very eloquently and, and honestly, as he's want to do um, that. Uh, and I, I was, I think, secretly sort of glad to hear him say that the, the Zoom theater kind of depressed him. Uh, I, I'm happy that people are doing it. I haven't done it. I've watched some efforts by friends and I applaud those efforts. I think just to get anything done and anything that you can self generate, uh, you know, under these circumstances or any circumstances really uh, is, is a good thing. But uh, yeah, I, it's, 
without that conversation between you and a bunch of people out there in the dark, it's, it, it's a little self-conscious. I think it's a little hard to, I, I don't know how well I would be able to do it. I have enough trouble, you know, I've, I'm, I have enough trouble on cam doing, you know, like legitimate camera work. It's just, it's, it's hard. It's a very different muscle. I've been lucky enough to watch like really people who are really good at it. My film career is such that I've, I've sat around watching, you know, good people do it. I've been like the guy that sits next to uh, Paul Newman or whatever. And I, you know, I get to watch them and it's amazing. Like they know what lens is in that camera. They know what part of the franchise they need to use and the economy of it is like, it's really, you know, as a film actor, I probably am too animated and too ticky, you know? Well, somebody said, somebody famous said, and I can't remember who that, you know, the different in, in the theater, the show starts when the actors are ready. And in the, in films, this, the actors are called when the set is ready. And that's kind of a, I, I think that's a tangible difference. You know, I read this, I don't know why somebody compiled this data, but it was like 20 years ago, something in uh, like Scientific American, the jobs that produce the most adrenaline in the human body. And number one, stage actor. Sure. Number, number two <laughs> was test pilot. And number, number three was like firemen. Wow. Yeah, firefighters. But number one was stage actor. And that's why you need a drink afterwards. You know, you, I mean, that's why everybody, you know, that's why it's hard to go home at night without some sort of mitigating. You're full of adrenaline. Mm -hmm. And that's also yeah. why you're in a state of grace on stage. You know, you, you, you don't get gas. You don't, nothing hurts. You know, I mean, you, it's like you, if you have a cold, you forget about it for two hours. You just, uh, it's, it's a, it's a wonderful <laughs> sort of phenomenon of uh, what uh, biochemistry I guess <laughs> stuff that I would never have believed was true it's all true yeah. Del was right I mean I never doubted that Del Close was right about anything <laughs> we Maggie and I have learned his his teachings we've read books about him at UCB it's it's kind of weird to hear you talk about him as a person that you know um because he's he just was, uh, this, he's this legend in our like life one of the like founding fathers of america you know I was here, like... <laughs> uh, you know to the thing that nobody talks about dell that to me i find the most poignant is that he he was this very talented guy that influenced all these people that got famous and nobody knows who he is you know he he didn't get famous and so that to me is like the I don't know. And that's sort of the poignant thing about Dell was that there was this kind of act of generosity that, that all teachers have. And Dell was an excellent teacher. He was a very generous person uh, in, in that respect, in two other artists, to people that were trying to me and to all of us who were, you know, trying to figure out what he was trying to figure out. We were kind of all doing it together. It was, it was magical. It was wonderful. It was a great time to be there, you know, and, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it like a lot of things. Uh, you know, it changed. It, it, people people got famous. People got on television. People, you know, got on Saturday Night Live and got Second City, whatever. That then that became kind of the goal. And when when I first started out, it was just kind of like, wow, can we do this? Is this is this a is this something that's possible to do? 
And I think Dell liked to keep it small. He, he certainly was uh, proud of and applauded people who made that launch, you know, in that very Chicago way, go away and tell them where they came from. Um, but I think his was a very grassroots kind of thing, you know, which was suited me fine. But then he told me to get out and uh, he was right. So that was, uh, uh, Del, uh, I'm not a spiritual person really, but every time I go in a theater, uh, I talk to my dead relatives backstage and I always say, I always thank Del backstage uh, when I'm waiting in the wings uh, because in the theater, it's all make-believe. So I talk to the dead <laughs> and uh, yeah, it makes me feel good. I miss it when I'm not working. I don't get to talk to my mom and dad on Sundays. Yeah, and Dell and a million other people. You know, a lot of uh, the idea of uh, finding Matt Damon uh, through this kind of serial thing. <laughs> I don't, I've never met Matt Damon. I, I have met Kevin Bacon, so I, I can play that game. But hey, me too. I was, an extra in a movie, I was an extra in a movie with Kevin Bacon. But yeah, the, the, the idea that the, uh, there's a, somebody my age and certainly listening to Austin, who is like the greatest storyteller of all times. He's been in the business since he was a teenager and he knows everybody. And he remembers so much. He amazes me. Um, so I, I feel like the, there are so many people that have influenced me who are no longer here, Dell being one. If, if Dell were alive, I would certainly say, you know, pass, pass the, the stuff to him and, and uh, we know. would pass out. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, you know, he was, uh, yeah, uh, in a lot of ways, my most memorable uh, acquaintance, you know. I mean, just I, I never met anybody exactly like him. I hope that you guys are, uh, get to ply your trade other than this. And I'm glad you're doing this. This is a great thing. But I mean, I hope we all, I hope we all you know, get to act again soon. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know what to expect, honestly. I was on tour with a production of the King's Speech uh, when the you know when the world shut down, and uh, then we did a couple of virtual readings. And the producer of that show said something that, uh, something a producer would think of that I never would. He said, "Well, even if you you know even if you're going to do twenty percent houses, you know, and social distance and he said, your curtain, your uh, intermission would take four hours just for everybody to get to go to the bathroom. So it's impossible. Oh, and, wow. and that's like a producer thing. I, I don't think about that, but it's true. If you have to social distance, you know, two people at a time in the bathroom, you guys, you know what it's like. I mean, even with a, with a small house, <laughs> it, it would take you an hour. Your intermission would be an hour. That's a really so true. Point. <laughs> I'll tell you a little anecdote, just uh, one of those great things that happens. I, my first job, my first Shakespeare role was Iago, which is a huge, which is like the second largest role in the canon. And Michael Halberstam of the writers uh, cast me because he said I auditioned for it. And he said, you're the only one that made the guy who was playing Othello. He said, you're the only one that made him nervous. And I, okay. So uh, it was daunting and I had no idea what to do. And they hired me a coach who sort of gave me this, you know, quick sort of like folio training. And then I, I had a month where I just sat with that text until I learned what I was, until I figured out what I was saying. 
And then it was like flying. It was great. It was wonderful. And uh, so I'm playing Iago. There's a scene where the there where he sort of pretends to stand up for uh, Cassio uh, after this fight. Othello comes out and breaks up this fight. They're in Cyprus and he comes out and breaks up this fight. And so we're in the middle of that scene. I, I'm in the middle of a speech where I'm sort of falsely singing the praises of Cassio. Uh, and somebody's phone goes off. So I just waited because I knew what my next line was. I waited for the phone and, you know, it takes them forever. Like they, you know how it is. They, mm-hmm. It's like, I, I've never used this phone before. It takes them at, you know, five, six rings to get the damn thing off. So finally, it goes away. And the next line was, but men are men. The best sometimes forget. And that was my next line. Beautiful. So I waited. I knew I was gold, you know, and I said that line and the whole house like broke into applause. It was fantastic. <laughs> that's amazing I love that. yeah Classic yeah yeah he knew he was ready for that <laughs> predicting the future yeah right. um well you kind of you led into it when you were talking about uh who, who you would lead us to and that's uh-huh. always a fun question for us to ask did you have people in mind I do I have uh I think of the of the two uh, sets of shoulders that I'm standing on, uh, David Cromer being one, and you've already plumbed his depths. The other is a young guy, uh, another young guy. Both of these is Kurt Columbus. I don't know if you know Kurt. He's the artistic director of uh, Trinity Rep. Maggie does. <laughs> I did my internship at Trinity Rep. Yeah. Well, yeah. He's, he's the next person I would suggest you talk to. He's oh. another person without whose help and encouragement and, uh, and brilliance, I, I wouldn't be talking to you now. So, uh, I, you know, and not to, uh, not to push him down the line, you know, but Kurt and, Kurt and David definitely were in Chicago when I got out of improv and was finding my way. When I went to Live Bait Theater, that place where they hired me for, for sewing on a button in my audition, um, Kurt was, Kurt was part of that gang and he, uh, you know, he's brilliant. He, he, he's a Russian scholar. He went to Yale. He's well, he, he can tell you his story, but he, <laughs> he's, uh, one of these guys that was like, you know, uh, years, years, he and Chrome are both years younger than me, but so much savvy about the thing that I wanted to do. And they both, uh, saw something in me that I didn't recognize myself, which that, that's the greatest debt, I think, is that they, they recognized something that they encouraged in me, that they fostered in me, that they encouraged me to embrace about myself. And so helped me in that, uh, you know, when I said, I, I think I lack the proper ambition for this business, uh, were it not for people like that. And, and Kurt was in a position to help me. Uh, he moved from live bait uh, and was at a, a, a small uh, equity house here called Victory Gardens, which is, uh, he was there for a while. I, he told them about me. I started working over there. I got my equity card there. And then Kurt moved to Steppenwolf. And, uh, you know, I, he was, he and a, a handful of other people were instrumental in me getting to work over there. And then Kurt wrote this, uh, this translation of Crime and Punishment, 
that we did uh, in Chicago and then in New York with three people. Uh, we did it in New York at 59th, 59th in, I don't know what year that was. I could be doing it still. It was such a great show. It, it really was good. And he, uh, yeah, he, he, uh, he's the guy. I'm really glad you know him and I'm not surprised <laughs> that you have a big smile on your face when, when his name comes up because uh, he's, he's wonderful. That, that sounds amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you have anything that you wanted to plug? Like the TV series or just anything? Oh, I know it's, it, there's you know, a, literally it's, a pandemic. <laughs> it's pretty small potato. I mean, I, you know, I have a couple of days I'm playing a judge on a new series for AMC called 61st Street. It's all being shot here with uh, Courtney Vance is kind of the, one of the stars, uh, the name you might recognize. Um, yeah. And it's, uh, somebody told me, and I don't know this, we, we've done a virtual table read of the pilot, that it's the people who, uh, production, uh, same creative staff who did uh, The Night Of, which was, I don't know if you saw that, with John Turturro. Oh. It was really good. I think it was HBO maybe a, a year and a half ago. It was very, very good. Uh, these guys have been working on this for like five years. They, they, wow. they had it written. They couldn't get it done. Then, you know, the pandemic. And so it's finally happening. But it's, a, it's, it's about real stuff. It's about uh, crooked cops. It's about race. It's about the south side of Chicago. It's all being shot here. Uh, and, and it's, it's uh, I, I've only seen two scripts because I'm only in two episodes. But it's good writing. And it's heartfelt. Uh, I, who knows what it'll look, you know, what the product will end up being. But it's uh, going into it. The, the it, it seems really uh, like people who are trying to accomplish something. It's not just a, you know, it's a, it's a socially conscious thing. It's employing a lot of uh, great local talent, I think. And uh, you know, I'm glad to be a part of it. Absolutely. I mean, it's great just to be working. Then there's a Comedy Central. Uh, show called South Side that had a little tiny part in the first season and they're going to do another part. They're going to do another season. They're coming back uh, like April, May. So, uh, and one of my friends who is a producer on it said, uh, I'll be back. So uh, I'm a cop. I played a million cops. Mostly, <laughs> uh, now that I'm David old, tell us that. White, I don't get to do it so quite so often, but uh, yeah, I got to play this uh, that's a funny show. It's it's fun to be in a comedy, and it's funny. I think I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it, it I, it's called Southside. It's on Comedy Central. You can you can find it out there. They did one season. We're going to do another one. Amazing. Right. That's what I got going on. And I was the voice <laughs> of uh, Stacey Abrams' uh, Fair Fight. Uh, I do voiceover, and uh, I was I was the voice of these uh, uh, a bunch of political ads down in Georgia, uh, trying to. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm very, so cool. I'm very proud of that, actually. Uh, yeah. Just because it means that Stacey Abrams listened to my audition and said, yeah, he's the guy. I can do sort of regional dialects, so I do, you know, they, they want a little south, a little southern in there. I can, I can kind of do that. So they like that. So that's how I get a lot of that stuff. But yeah, that's, that's so awesome. you know, it's, it's not like uh, real advertising money, but it's also, uh, you feel like maybe get to help do something good. <laughs> yeah. 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 
great to meet you guys. And it was and, so nice and to congratulations meet you. on this and doing this. I mean, I just I, I admire the initiative and I and I it's it's really smart and it's lovely, you know, it's great. And thank you. I, I think uh, I'm I'm so uh, honored really to be asked to be part of it from given the I haven't listened to everybody. I know Andre a little bit. I mean, I have met him, I should say that. Met him at the Goodman. Uh, uh, oh, it's been 10 years ago now, probably. He was in the building when I was doing something there and uh, just met him in passing. Wonderful guy. Yes. I mean, he, he's the so real, nice. Uh, he, he's the, he, he, like, guys like him and Austin are, I mean, that's like, that's what this is all about, you know? Mm -hmm. It's, it's yeah. very encouraging. And, <laughs> Uh, anyway, yeah. thanks for having me. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks. Thank so you. For it was so nice meeting I hope, you. I hope you can use some of this. I, I hope it you don't use it all. <laughs> <laughs> we edit it. Don't we worry. We do edit. Good. Okay. Yeah, we do. <laughs> all right. Thanks. Have I a great you. night. Yeah, you Have too. Have a great night. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Finding Matt Damon. Please be sure to subscribe to never miss an episode. And if you liked what you heard, leave us a review. Special thanks to Kristen Crack for the music and Jody Croucher for the sound. And Matt, if you're listening, we're coming. <laughs>